Good morning, and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, one step closer with Stacy Harris and John Sumter. Hey, Stacy, it's phone call number two hundred and forty-seven, and the first one of the of the two thousand twenties. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, I can't complain. It's sunny out, mid forties here in North Carolina. I am home. No travels planned for the first couple of weeks of the year. Um, it's a good good way to start the year and i've been been focused on writing and uh and doing a little binge reading and and, and binge watching of tv so you know th- those are great ways to start the year off how about you have you been doing anything exciting besides uh work you know this is this is the dead spot in my calendar and uh, um, i'm trying to learn how to enjoy having time off which which i haven't really made a habit of over the years and so uh, this was time off it was time off it was great Ready to go back to work. Yes, we, we do have to figure out ways to to do a better job of getting time off. I think almost everybody in the work world these days um, has the same challenge, even outside the U.S., I'm understanding, which is just finding it hard to disconnect from everything, right? Well, it's, you know, it's um, only 150 years since, um, I guess, 165 or 70 now since... <laughs> Slavery, slavery was outlawed in the states, and um, as a general work habit, it seems to be still in vogue. So, so, so it's not just employers who have to learn how to do things differently. It's it's the people who work there who have to learn how to do things differently. Yeah, we all have to remember to give ourselves some time and space. But this, as you said, is our first call of the year, and so as we promised everyone. We're actually going to be taking a look back a little bit on some of the big topics that came up in the last year and last decade um, and covering, you know, things that um, have happened that are worth maybe rediscussing um, and then talking a little bit about what we see happening in the future from a, from a not so much a predictions, but just where the market is heading um, based off of what we're seeing right now. So that's what we're planning on, on calling or talking about today. Um, do you have any areas you want to start the conversation off with, John? Because it's, it's a that's a lot to talk about. Ten dec, you know, ten years, a decade, you know, all of last year and going forward. Where do you think we should start? Well, I, I'll tell you that, that we were having a great conversation before the show, uh, and the two things that that we touched on that are interesting to me is <clears throat> one is the broad. Um, perception by employees that HR technology is surveillance software. That's that's something that's rarely discussed in the in the world that you and I inhabit. And the other is the different ways that that automation is changing HR. So so we talked about the fact that the instructional designer disappeared when micro content started to uh, be part of the game. And we also talked about the fact that the role of the recruiter changed entirely as the result of job boards burying uh, organizations in resumes. And and so the job went from somebody who was a hard prospector and lucky to find somebody to a team of people whose primary job is to dig through the great big pile of resumes that come in whether you want them or not. And and I think what's what was sort of intriguing about our conversation 
is that they're they're really tightly tied and connected, probably more so than we think, because as you sort of continue to remove what would be considered that middle layer or that, that group of people who sort of have oversight while they're actually doing a lot of the specialist work that we were talking about, structural designers, recruiters, you know, compensation analysts, those type of roles, then what you end up is that a lot of the information ends up in the hands of, <clears throat> directly in the hands of managers who are making business decisions and who are making quick decisions for the organization. And then becomes the question of who's overseeing the ethics and the privacy standards and the requirements, you know, that are necessary in this type of environment where we have so much freely available information. Um, I think those two two um, conversations are tightly connected based off of the way we've been talking about them. Yeah, well, you know, the 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 core connection is that. <clears throat> Uh, technology is creating different ways to do things, and so so what we're seeing, even though I, I, you know I've never really seen an article or, or an analysis that talks about this, what what's happened is that is that the entire HR profession has adapted and adjusted to a massive flow of technology, and that was good preparation because the last couple of years have guaranteed that that flow of technology is going to accelerate. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. and so, so technology hits the functions differently. Um, and th there really isn't a single way that HR has responded to technology in general. It, it depends entirely on the task. Well, and, and in this environment that we're talking about, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, that technology has not only changed sort of the work we're doing and the tasks that we're doing and the approach that we're taking to the work, right, um, but it's also changing the level of access we have to information about everyone around us, you know, at, at multiple levels. Um, you know, I think the conversation of what, you know, the the value proposition for the person whose information is out there and available is as big a conversation as privacy standards and ethics. I I guess the best way to explain that is that, you know, in the in the conversations with my kids right now about, you know, what they have available out there in the market on themselves, is they don't mind sharing all their personal information if there's some value they're gonna get back in that, you know, the right kind of advertisements access to some information, tools they want to leverage and use on a regular basis. But they also are very excited about and, and have high expectations that if they want to go, as they call it, incognito, which is the new term being used, right, out in the Google environment, they can go and look for things or put their information out there in, in ways in which it'll be considered anonymous. In the HR space, I think that a lot of the conversation has to shift away from the process and the tools and how we get our job done to much more of a conversation about if I'm doing this or if I'm getting this information or if I'm using this, what's the value to the person who has is giving me that information or sharing that with me? So that's no longer just about the process and what the company needs, but it's also about the, the relationship with the, whether that's employee or candidate or, 
prospects or anybody in the organization that you're working with, the relationship with them and the value proposition of, of their data being involved in your in your work effort. I, I don't know. It's a long way of explaining that. Does that make any sense at all, John? <laughs> well, I, so I think that what you just said is that that um, the employment relationship is a contract, and traditionally the contract was simple. You come, you do what we tell you to do, we give you money, right? And in the last hundred years, that's grown to include we give you money plus healthcare plus 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 all sorts of different things. <clears throat> but the the fundamental equation, which was you come, you do what we tell you to do, and we give you stuff, um, was always the basis of the relationship. And now, when people come they're bringing a sort of a, a cash equivalent or a monetary equivalent with them, and that's their data. And and so what you're saying is that this relationship that's always been kind of a one-way thing, you come, you do what we tell you to do, we give you money, is now becoming a two-way relationship where you come and you give us your data, and in order for us to get your data, we have to tell you why we deserve your data and what we're going to do with it. And so that's a change, of a substantive change in the relationship that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. No, that was a great way of explaining it because I think it's, it's you have, we have to explain why, what we're going to do with it and why we need it and the value of it and, and how much it's worth to us. And, and then exchange then, and, and we're still going to pay you for your work effort, but even if you don't do any work with us, right? Like if you're a candidate or a prospect, there's still value in you interacting with us, right? So, so this idea that there's thousands of people, you know, responding to every job role right now, well, that's all data gathering, right? You know, I had a great conversation with a, with a couple of, of the analysts in the, in the recruiting space and one of them, I think, had a different perspective than what I'd heard from anybody else, which is that they felt that the candidate database and the recruiting database actually should be completely separate databases because of the data privacy issues across the two platforms, right? I thought, well, that's the first time I'd heard, you know, usually it's, well, should they be integrated? Do we need them all on one platform? Can we use a different CRM and connect it to what's going on with our ATS? Because um, there's just newer technologies out there doing it. But this idea that they need to be separated because we treat them differently and we should treat their data differently. It was a different conversation, right? Uh, so so I, I, I'd, I'd be interested in, in having that conversation in detail with somebody. But, but the truth is, if you, the, the, the most interesting stuff that's going on in recruiting is, involves um, – realizing that people you've started relationships with are valuable, right? So there's a lot of, lot of emphasis on what they call silver medalists. Somebody who came in second, didn't get the job is somebody you want to talk to again. Right. And so, so I, where do they live? If you've got uh, people who are in the game and people who aren't in the game as the dividing criteria, uh, the the entire theory of um, CRM is that what you're doing is you're evolving relationships, yeah. right? And those those relationships that you're evolving are going to have different mm, 
states of being. And so, so I don't know how you, how you do what you're talking about, particularly if you start to manage gig workers in the same sort of data sets. Yeah. Because those relationships are on again and off again. And so, so my guess is that you, is that it's an interesting sales posture, but it probably can't work over time. Well, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I don't think I have a perspective either way on this one. I I can see some level of um, uh, simplicity, right? Right. And this was not a a vendor who was actually proposed. This This is someone who was in a sort of more of an analyst role, but even so, I think, you know, the perspective was much more about dealing with sort of how you deal with the data, you get what you do with it, right? But I, but I agree. I mean, I think there's there's such a, a a differentiation in what we consider an employee once you know once they step over that line. Now, at this point in time, our government has very specific guidelines about what they consider an employee, but that doesn't always fit the same you know definitions we have. And so, so yes, I think there is there's some challenge there. But I also think there's some challenge with the idea of um, data sort of being moved from one database into another database and and the fact that you have to take the context with it to make it valuable. And what's happening right now with most integrations is that we move data from one database to another database, but all we do is we strip away the easiest, most sort of um, common things to pull across, you know, the, the title of a person, the, you know, length of employment with a company, but it doesn't give any context to why they've been with that company for that long which the original database may have had. And so we lose a lot when we go from integration to integration without really thinking about how that and why we're pulling that data over. Well, and, and so, so just to keep drilling down this little uh, rabbit hole, the, the smartest tools, the smartest tools out there, the Phenom people comes to mind, but, but, mm-hmm. but, but what they do is they monitor every single click and pause between clicks and choice um, as a way of starting to understand uh, the candidate. And if you, if you don't make that part of the overall relationship with that person as they pass through working with you and out the other side of working with you, um, you're going to lose enormous amount of value in the process and so and so it's it really is just a question of time before we start being able to figure out um, how that historical data of the evolution of the relationship between the company and the person uh, is tracked um, from the moment that there is a hint of a relationship to the moment that there is no possibility of a future relationship yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's definitely, I mean, if you look back at, you know, so one of the things I did in preparing for our call this week was to look back at sort of the keywords that were popping up most often in the notes that we have every week from our radio show. And a lot of the stuff you just talked about, I think, you know, it's stuff that we've been grappling with for this last year, right? You know, ethics came up as one of the number one words that was mentioned in our in our radio notes. Um, across all of the the entire year, artificial intelligence, artificial AI, anything in those that area, right? Um, recruiting, RPO, chatbot, privacy, K 
candidates, all things we just mentioned in this conversation. Um, we also saw a lot of focus on healthcare and benefits and assessments. Um, deep fakes seem to come up on a, a pretty regular amount of times. Payroll, payday, lending, blockchain, microlearning, culture, and engagement and platform. Those were sort of the words that popped to the top when I analyzed all of the, the things. Do you think that the conversation that we're having here is sort of a microcosm of this entire year, which has been, I think, a confusing year for HR technology, which is we have had to deal with the fact that we now have outstripped in some case not only our current regulations, which happens on a regular basis, but our current understanding of the role HR should play um, in its relationship with data and ethics and um, responsibility towards the employee versus the businesses, all that's been outstripped at a pretty far length now with what the technology can do and does provide for organizations today, right? This would probably be a great time for me to say, if you're listening, you might want to buy a copy of the latest HR examiner report on intelligence in HR tech, because this is the terrain that it covers. Um, how does the data go together? Um, how do you make sense out of all this? What are the real deep, profound ethical issues, not the the the, the cheap top level ethical issues? So, so thanks for the nudge. <laughs> yeah. And, always, and, and always yeah, I, help, I think yeah, I think I think a good way of thinking about this radio show is it's a window on our conversation as we try to figure out the answers to those questions. Right, and we use the news as a forum for trying to figure out the answers to those questions. But but what we do in this half hour radio show is an ongoing focused exploration of how technology is changing the HR profession. Yeah. Very very, yeah. very true. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I think it's not just changing the HR profession, it's it, it's forcing the HR profession to reassess its role inside the organization as well, right? Not just changing the job and the function, which I think happens on a pretty regular basis with almost any job role in organizations, but but really rethinking what is HR's responsibility inside of an organization, right? Like what is the, the reason for it to some extent, right? Well, I think, I think one of the things that popped out this year for me was that you can't really have a coherent, proactive HR department if you don't have a well-thought-out workforce development plan. It's that simple. You can't. You can't have a great HR function if you don't know where you're going. Right. The what, only way to open... Give me a definition of what you mean by workforce development plan, because I think that that term gets thrown out, thrown around. Same as workforce planning, right? What does that mean to you? Well, so 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 I would use the terms interchangeably, and what I mean is a view of the future that allows you to understand sort of the shape of the workforce. There's 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 been a lot of work put into the theory that you can tell exactly how many engineers you need in Cincinnati five years from now. And that has never really worked very well. 
uh, and there are emerging ideas about workforce planning that are more like wealth management, portfolio management. Yeah. So you say we're gonna we're gonna need X. Um, generally speaking, five years out, and so we need to invest in ways of developing our people so that they can be X or um, relationships with sources so that we can acquire that kind of talent. And it's much more of a um, investment strategy than it is a precise numbers game, right? So that's what I mean by workforce planning or workforce development planning is that you you have a clear sense of where you're going and you're in the process of making decisions and instituting programs that help you get in that direction. I'd say that's a, that's a pretty good definition, but I'm not sure that everybody, that's the thing that I think our market has to, has to do almost on some level is define what a workforce plan is and, 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 um, we've commoditized a lot of other things, performance management, um, what learning looks like, the, you know, the recruiting process. Those are pretty, not the same in every organization, but very standardized. I wouldn't say that we have standardized what workforce planning is inside most organizations at this point. Oh, I, I think that's right. And it may be that it's not standardizable. You know, so so if you think if if the wealth management analogy holds, you think about wealth managers, um, financial managers, uh, you it's a crapshoot, right? The, the hiring a financial manager is a complete crapshoot, and um, and you end up with somebody's opinion about how to manage your portfolio. And that's yeah. kind of where that's kind of where we're talking about it. So it might standardize in language, but but it seems unlikely to me that it'll standardize in precise processes like some of the other stuff has. Like some of the other items, yeah, we won't commoditize it as much. Well, that could very well be, and it might be that that's the piece that makes every company unique, right? I mean, a lot of the conversation, I think for me this year, has boiled down very much to the fact that through all the research that I've done at CR Cedar and previous organizations and all the conversations that we've had each year, is that HR, when it's done at its best, is done in benefit to the type of organization you want to be or the type of organization that has been defined by the executives and the leaders, as well as the employees at some level. It's, it's not HR processes and tools and all of those things that we've standardized are great, but it's that 20% that you put into being very unique about HR and how it supports your very specific business culture and your very specific business outcomes that make all the difference in the world. And most of the time that is very different company by company, which I think is part of what you were saying is that it's, there may be no standard way to do this in the market. Yeah. 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 Because, because this is the DNA of the company. What is, what is, what is our talent and what's it going to look like down the road is the heart of the company. Yeah. And so, so this, I mean, the, just to bring this back to the question you started with, which is what is HR's role in uh, the company today? And 
it, it seems to me that it's evolving from uh, compliance to the care and feeding of the primary value source of the company. So much more like a, you know, well, that probably isn't a good analogy. I'm thinking much more like a zookeeper than a. <laughs> like a zookeeper. A, yeah, I'm thinking the care and feeding, right? <laughs> I mean, some employees might feel that they are locked up in cages, unfortunately. But yeah, no, I mean, I think the the the, the better way to you know to probably explain it is that the HR. Um, function has has shifted from a single-sided sort of management focus. It's also shifted from a single-sided um, focus on, you know, employee well-being as well, right? That's a, that, you know, in the earliest days, much of HR, I mean, if you're going back to the 1700s and 1800s, when we first started seeing even pieces of it, it was people who were sort of embedded in organizations to deal with things like child labor laws and make sure they were being held accountable too, right? So it was a, a very different set. And then in the 70s and 80s, we looked at organizations that were very compliance-focused based off of that, but also were focused on being a part of management in the fact that if you laid someone off or if you were making sure that a management decision was put down, they figured out the processes, the tools, and the compliance standards to get that to happen, right? Um, and we definitely... All of that has been part of our history. Um, I can, you know, I had a great conversation with my my father over this Christmas holiday about the changes he made in his own work environment. He went from working in a very large oil refinery environment to being a teacher, and he said, you know, there there was no conversation in any of the transactions that he had with HR at that point in time. And he said, but then in his last two or three jobs. He said he's had lots of conversations with HR. So because there was conversations about where his career was going in the organization. And so just the transition to being someone who develops the organization, not just someone who mandates or manages what has been given to them, right, is a, is a very real and very, I think, an important um, conversation for HR to have. Yep, yep. Um, I think in some ways you might think of it as a return to the roots. Um, in the 20s and early 30s, what the um, people in this kind of a function did is they looked at work and they assessed work and they figured out how to um, time work and price work and measure work. Um, and that was the heart of the HR function. Um, we're headed back there because um, automation makes you have to rethink all of the jobs in the, com in the company. And it means that much of the work that was, um, that has been done over the last several years um, <clears throat> will be automated, not to lose the job. And we have, this is one of the big conversations that we just had is that all of this automation isn't going to get rid of jobs, but it will, require a very different workforce at the end of it because you're getting rid of a lot of the specialized roles um, and now you're requiring people who are able to understand and provide oversight to what the automated tools are now doing with their algorithms and machines, correct? Yeah, although I'd, I'd be tempted to say that you're trading in one kind of specialization for another kind of specialization, right? So it's not 
it's not like the specialized roles go away and all of a sudden a bunch of liberal arts majors come in to do technical work. It's, <laughs> right. It's more like it's more like what used to be a full-time job is now not really a full-time job, so you need to be able to do something else. Yeah. Um, and and as the core function gets automated, the number of things that you need to be able to do in addition to the one bit of expertise you used to have grows. And so it's not a generalist in the way that people in the education establishment think about generalists, but it's a generalist in the way that um, engineering might think about a generalist. I, I will have to say I am very happy to hear that. I don't think anybody would want someone like me with a liberal arts background running every role within an organization. I think that would be a really, really bad idea. <laughs> We'd never get any <laughs> Yeah, but I'll tell you what, you you won't find (laughs) that that very clear notion percolating through um, um, the future of work stuff. I don't see people talking about that in the future of work. They talk a lot about the importance of generalists. Um, And and I think that's largely because people who, who pontificate about work haven't actually ever worked. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's that, you know what I, you know what I mean. If your if your job is, know, if you have yeah. a job like a job like you and I do, it isn't really work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not not <laughs> not not in the way that somebody inside of a large organization has to do things. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, right, and so and so our view of what the future of work is is very different from what the organizational reality is going to be. Well, and I think it, it, it also continues to, to push that we need to keep going back to not only the data, because the data has a lot of insight on this and provides a lot more um, here than I think that we can even imagine, but also to go back to the people who are actually in those work environments. And, and I think it's exactly what you're saying is that HR has to really look at every job again and, and reexamine where that you know, work is, what's the possibilities within that work environment. That's really hard work to do that, but that's the kind of future of work conversation that needs to play, be taking place in every organization right now, I would assume, correct? Yeah, yeah, and and it's hard to do that when everybody is being terrified by these forecasts of the yeah. demolition of all work and replacement by people who don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's fear is definitely a thing that we tend to would tend to go towards uh, as human beings. There's always the fear that change is going to have a a negative impact on us. But if there's any if there's anything to calm you know everyone's sense is that you know if we just look back at the last twenty thirty years. So I, I sort of just captured dates of the major things that happened in sort of the HR technology era starting. In 1940, I think the earliest one I found was that ADP was founded in 1949, um, went public in 1961, the earliest of the type of organizations that we track. But just in the last 10 years, we've had almost twice as many, I would say, major industry events. That's what I was kind of tracking was major industry events along with major sort of technology events 
that would have an impact on buyers or analysts or uh, vendor communities. And twice as many in the last year um, as there was in the first few years. And then definitely more than the previous decade before it, right? And so every year I think the speed of change is just going to continue to increase. And so the value proposition is to figure out how to work with that change and not fear it. Because if we fear it, it, it's not going to slow down and it's not going to stop changing and it's not going to stop sort of reassessing and reach, you know, reforming our world. Um, but it will provide, I think, some very exciting new things based off of, of what we're seeing coming down the road. Yeah, it'd be it'd be nice if somebody and and I failed at it. Uh, you you might fail at it. If somebody could say, "Okay, here are the specific things you need to do to adjust." Right. I think I think that's how you you solve the um, fear problem is is you show a specific path, and um, I don't see anybody doing that. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's possible because I think every organization starts at a different point, right? It's one of the reasons why, um, in the in the work that I'm doing right now and the writing I'm doing, I, I you know I, I I feel every HR professional has to know some bit of history about the HR technology market because whatever their company is at is at a very different point from where any other country or any other company is in in this evolution of their own process, right? Um, so I don't think the path of both of change and of, of figuring out that, you know, how best to address the workforce of the future and figuring out how best to think about the processes and tools that they need in HR to support that. I would be hard pressed to think that there's a standard way to do that. Well, I, I think there might be, I think there might be, but it's, but it's challenging. And, and the the way that you do it is, the first thing that you do is you say, HR is not about a profession. HR is mm -hmm. about the management of the most important part of any company. And in order to manage the most important part of any company, um, you first have to know what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, and so, so what are the top five things that you're trying to do? And, and not we're going to fix this burning problem tomorrow, but the, the top five things that you're trying to do with the workforce um, over the next five years, right? And, and if you answer that, then um, you have a, a, a roadmap for, the kind, for making technology decisions to help you do that stuff faster, better, cheaper, or whatever. Um, but it starts with a process where you have to figure out what's important to you. You have to do that for your organization and with your organization. And what's interesting about that is, is the organization doesn't necessarily always articulate clearly what is actually important, right? It's one of the, one of the places where you could make a lot of improvement in HR right now is by by growing people in HR who are capable of separating what gets said from what gets actually done and making some sense about expressing that as what the organization is trying to do. 
So I, I, I agree with you on this one. I, I think this is a big gap in the, in the HR skill set right now, which is, um, you know, oftentimes they'll ask, you know, HR organizations, you know, what are your top priorities? And, and then you'll hear the comeback, well, our businesses haven't set their goals or processes yet. And I said, well, you know, HR's job is to really understand how your organization functions and what, how it achieves its outcomes and what is the financial metrics the organization is holding itself responsible to. If you know that, you should be as aligned with the businesses as they're working through those conversations. Um, but that's not a place that HR oftentimes, and it's not even the business partner role that David Allark used to talk about. I mean, that was always a good thing to make sure you got to gather the data and had it. But it's much more, I think, what you're talking about, which is filtering through um, what's being said to actually what's being done in some cases or what's actually, how decisions are actually being made, which are two different things inside many of these organizations, right? That's right. That's right. Well, and, and what matters is rarely what gets said. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the hardest part about the job of HR is that is that um, you, you know if you take the example of trying to figure out the problems with bias in the hiring process, what gets documented isn't where the bias lives. What happens in the intelligence selection of candidates from databases isn't where bias lives. Bias lives in um, facial mannerisms, and it lives in office design, and it lives in resource allocation, and it lives in promotion tracks. You know, um, and and the the great HR people can see that and can articulate what it is. Yeah. And and I think the other side of that, which I think you know, you're you're right on is that is that the database is sort of the last place that it shows up, right? It's 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 an important conversation, but if if it is in all those other places you were talking about, it's without a doubt going to end up in any data that you have, right? So there is there's that component of understanding how those two worlds are connected. But the other half of what we're talking about is, um, you know, the role of HR in some cases today has to be the mirror for the company. The, um, the you, know, you know, one of the companies that I put on this list of, of, of just sort of major things that happened is, you know, you know when was the first, I, I, and I went looking because I didn't know when the very first sort of BlackBerry came out, right? And, and you know, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was kind of what you expected. You know, I, I went looking and, you know, it was uh, 1992 was the sort of the first BlackBerry that was a phone that, that was somewhat usable, right? Um, and then there was some, um, you know, 2002 was the first mobile phone that was, that was usable in the BlackBerry environment. And so I was like, all right, you know, if we think about things like that, you know, was there a role for HR to see where the organization was at, to understand what leadership was trying to achieve, but also to be a mirror to say, look, you're trying to get better mobile phone developers instead of doing design work or focusing on where the market's heading or understanding the newest, you know, technologies. Is HR's role one of 
of a mirror inside of the organization to point out when the businesses might be heading down the wrong path. And I don't know the answer to that, and a lot of people would probably push back on that. But I think there's a <laughs> lot of places where HR has insight in that. I think that's exactly right. And this sounds like a great place to stop. Um, and we should pick this back up next week. It's a, What a great conversation, Stacey. Thanks so much. Well, it's a great way to start off the new year. And hopefully this will give um, everyone some things and ideas to ponder as they um, get started back at their work uh, next week. And uh, we look forward to having more conversations like this. Okay, thanks, Stacy. Uh, you've been listening to HR Tech Weekly, one step closer with Stacy Harris and John Sumpter. Um, we might do this again in a couple of weeks as the 250th show. See you next week, and Sounds thanks like- for tuning in. Bye bye, and thanks, Stacy. Yep, thanks everyone. Bye.